Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, it's Matt. Before we start the show, I just want to quickly tell you about Masterclass. Go to masterclass.com. Check out all the classes from the best instructors in the world on every topic. Right now, you can check out Building Your Startup with Alexis Ohanian which is super cool. A lot of people get into that nowadays. I actually went to check out Modeling Fundamentals by Naomi Campbell, and uh, believe it or not, uh, that was super helpful and fascinating. Of course, I learned magic from Penn & Teller on there. Even though I learned from magic from real life from Penn & Teller, um, I actually learned a ton from their master class as well. Shh, don't tell them that. Uh, but yeah, so many experiences. Even back in the day, I took Aaron Sorkin's screenwriting class. That's helped me uh, in so many ways beyond just trying to write a screenplay. Uh, there's so many lessons there. You learn at your own pace. You take the classes as you need them. They all break down in different chapters. You have little workbooks to help you along the way. Best teachers. And uh, I think you're going to love it. So head on over to uh, masterclass.com slash pen now. I highly recommend you check it out. You get unlimited access to every class all time. And as a Penn Sunday School listener, you get 15% off the annual membership. So go to masterclass.com slash pen. That's masterclass.com slash P-E-N-N for 15% off masterclass. Go there now. Someone offered to design you a postcard, and they tweeted at me. So I'm oh, pretty sure great. they tweeted you. Thank you. Send that you to can me. I need a you postcard. can have your own postcard to sell for five to maybe twenty, <laughs> maybe a hundred dollars. Yeah. Hey, it's Uh-oh. starting. <laughs> We're gonna work. Tense up. Here we go. Brothers, sisters, siblings, welcome to Penn Sunday School, starring Penn Gillette. My name is Michael Ledeau, Matt Penn, Reddy Richard and I are broadcasting from Show Creator Studios South here in Las Vegas. Oh boy, our pal magician Harrison Greenbaum is here. He's currently appearing as the superstar in Mad Apple at New York, New York. He's here visiting us today. Here he is preaching love, Mr. Penn Gillette. You are on the, uh, you're on, you're 30 years behind me, right? I mean, I was a New York guy, a complete New York guy, and then I came out to Vegas. Yeah, exactly. I'm just on a time delay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you're, you're doing that, right? Yeah, 14 years in Manhattan doing 600, 700 sh- comedy shows a year, plugging away. And then I got a call on, I was getting off a plane from a road gig. I was in between shows two and three of a four show night in New York. They said, can you come out to Las Vegas for one night? We just need you for one night. And now I'm here for a while. <laughs> you're, the, you're the big hit of uh, Mad Apple. Yeah, they, they had me come in for literally one night. I packed three pairs of underwear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did my Sunday because show. It was, because it was filling in for Louie, you thought you needed extra underwear? <laughs> That's right. Because exactly. it's so exciting filling in for Louie, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, I after the first night, they said, hey, do you mind sticking around till?" Uh, Tuesday and I said so sure dirty. <laughs> yeah exactly I was like alright well I have three pair of underwear this will work I can make it till Tuesday they're like can you stay till the end of the week and I'm like I'll make it work I'll make it work and then before I could get on the plane to come back to New York they offered me a contract for uh, over a year so over a year yeah that's very good that's very good and you had all, you had your whole life planned right there was like wedding plans and everything yes I had to del- my wedding plans have been slightly delayed <laughs> <laughs> yeah my fiance's thrilled and the basic the basic <laughs> idea was I'm getting more famous, bitch. Let's rethink this wedding thing. Is that the idea? 
Yeah, I think I use those exact words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have to redo the prenup. <laughs> the prenup goes I'm the single other now, and so that's been a part of the... <laughs> <laughs> this is the most comfortable I've ever been at a podcast. This is... I've never gotten to sit in such a couch. Is it nice? It's very nice. I like that it's set up like a bus, too. Matt's behind us. We're all facing the same way. <laughs> yeah, toot, toot. Exactly. Hi, guys. <laughs> so, uh, you, you doing any magic? Yeah, doing comedy and magic, which okay. has been great. So How do, long are you doing in the show? Uh, how long am I supposed to be doing? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, no, I'm doing about, I would say like 20, 30 minutes in the show mm-hmm. total over the course of the oh, show. Really? Really? You, yeah. you MC kind of? You, the host? Well, I'm doing, I have two sort of, uh, sets where I'm doing comedy and magic. And then there's two other parts of the show where I'm sort of introducing acts and doing, uh, bits with the crowd. And it's a, it's a Cirque show. Full on Cirque show. I've never felt fatter or more unattractive backstage in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am surrounded by beautiful circus people. But I mean... Cirque show, yeah. to, to me, is a pejorative. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, very attractive people with duck heads glued to their face. <laughs> That's right. That's what they have, do. Have you been assimilated? <laughs> a lot of feathers. Is yeah. all we need to know. Are you assimilated? Well, the thing that's so interesting is they. this is the first show they've ever had stand-up comedy in. Mm-hmm. And they very smartly were like, we want you. The only rule is kill. Just be as funny as you can be. There are no rules. So I'm the first Cirque du Soleil performer ever to say cunt. Mm-hmm. In 38 years, you know, on a Cirque stage. Well, it doesn't have a duck face over it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You can't usually hear them. They're all saying it. Yeah, they're saying it in their heads the whole time. <laughs> but it's been cool. They, they let me just, I'm playing myself. I'm not playing any kind of creature. Um, I speak in English. Uh, my makeup makes me look like me. Like they actually, the no- You wear makeup? I wear makeup, just just subtle makeup, just to, so I don't get blown you out by the light. put on yourself? Yeah. So that's like the Cirque thing is everybody has to put on their own makeup. Did you ever wear makeup before on stage? Yes. Thank God. Actually, thank God for sure. Because when I, the first time I ever really put stage makeup on was for The Illusionist. And I was the only person who didn't bring his own makeup. So one of the dancers took me to some pharmacy in Australia and was like, here, let's just buy this stuff. So I looked pretty rough. I looked like an Egyptian pharaoh. I had very thick (laughs) eyeliner, very heavy foundation. Um, Who's Cleopatra Greenbow? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Is he a drag queen? Is that... Uh, so they, they have professional makeup artists who were able to actually, I, I think I'm the first Cirque performer who they ever told to tone down the makeup. <laughs> you had too much makeup on first? It was a little thick and it wasn't as subtle as it could have been. See, I don't wear, I don't wear makeup at all in the Penn and Teller show. Interesting. Uh, uh, Looking think, sickly is probably helpful to your show. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> what, you, you, you've seen the show, yeah. Matt Donald. I mean, do I look particularly sickly? No, I, no you I, look fine. I don't know. Teller puts on a little something, I think, now. Yeah, just like, I basically have like a little bit of foundation, just a tiny bit of eyeliner, just to pop a little bit extra. Yeah. I, I, Plus, I'm surrounded by people with very big, you know, cirky makeup, so I would stand out a little bit too much, I think. Well, Penn, you wear glasses. It's kind of your signature, so you're not looking for the eyes to pop. Beneath the I don't look for my eyes. I don't want my eyes to pop. <laughs> when you have a bowl, your eyes pop. I don't want that. I mean, that is a uh, yeah. That's a, yeah. A bowl of Zaire, your eyes pop. A bowl of Resden, a little less so. <laughs> well, like, where do you get your makeup notes, Harrison? When it comes down the pipe, when they when they when it becomes yeah, yeah. who's at the who's whose action item is it to talk to you about your makeup? There was like a, there was a makeup artist uh, at the beginning who was just his whole job was to train people and doing it. They give you like photographs of the thing. Um, it was, but I, I came in real fast. So they literally the first day they threw me in a makeup guy. He was like, that looks fine enough. Uh, and then they spent most of the time teaching me how not to die on the elevator. 
yeah. that come up the lift. So they showed right. me all the ways I could lose a leg, lose an arm. <laughs> that's good. Well, they're like, they're put the your fingers there, no fingers. Well, you know, the, uh, uh, that's that, you know, that's that's a, that's a horrible thing. I mean, circus fuck people up. They they have a pretty good track record for thirty eight years, but there's been a couple. Yeah. Uh, what? No, the track record for thirty eight years is nobody. That would be good. Nobody. Right. That, that would be ideal. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Teller and there are a few track people who disagree vehemently. <laughs> for forty for forty seven years, Teller and I have had nobody hurt. That's I mean that's the yeah that's that's, that's what we're yeah, going. You guys for. point guns at each other. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I did see Spider Man on Broadway. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> did you see it? Spider-Man? It's the, it was the best bargain in theater. You get I think it was like seventy dollars, and you get to see seventy five million dollars worth of failure. <laughs> it was a very good exchange rate. <laughs> um, a friend of mine saw it and just said it was just astonishing. It was pretty wild. When did you, I mean, I guess it changed so much that your overlap with my friend who saw it is probably zero, right? The, the most salient memory I have is because I was sitting in the, the mezzanine and there's a ramp that leads off the mezzanine so that Spider-Man can literally run off the ramp and fly through the theater and then land on the stage. Mm-hmm. And as Spider-Man's getting ready to run up the ramp, a little girl is like, Spider-Man, and starts running after him. And I'm like, oh my God, she's taking the easy way out. <laughs> this this bitch is gonna have not have to sit through any of it um but no somebody literally grabbed her before she ran up there was no protocol about what if somebody tries to follow spider-man because they're children and the person's dressed like a superhero so it was pretty it was pretty nuts wow and did did anybody just like hang over the stage for a long time i uh, they made it re- through almost to the end like the finale number when the actual guy who plays spider-man is in a suit which is very weird it's a spider-man like suit, like a wedding suit like it's a jacket and pants but in the spider-man colors so he's in a literal <laughs> spidey suit uh and then he got stuck right in the last number and then they just didn't finish the show they were just like thank you good night <laughs> so our last image was spider-man power and did you hanging. did you get the apology speech at the beginning some people saw apology speech. Really sorry that this show is really not in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> That's always how you want to start. <laughs> that, I think Chris Angel's version is he just blows garbage in your face, and that counts as an apology. <laughs> I have had everybody. <laughs> did, did you see uh, Mystica? I'm not allowed. Oh yeah. I'm pretty sure there's a poster that's just my face, and it says no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On the back of every cash register. Because I, right. I've now talked to very articulate people who have seen the show, including Teller. And Teller and I have been talking for almost 50 years, and we understand each other very well. And Teller says to me, they put up two or three effects fans, and they drop garbage on it, and it blows garbage into the audience. And I go, what are you saying, Teller? And Teller repeats it. And I say, (laughs) he said, oh, uh, a server came over and said, you might want to cover your drinks. They're going to blow garbage into the audience. <laughs> and I said, what? Is it a trick? Teller said, no. I said, does it, does it tie in with the plot? And Teller said, no. And I said, what is it? And he said, there's two or three effects fans and they drop garbage from the ceiling and it blows into the audience. <laughs> and then Mac King said to me, and he bought that bit from somebody else. <laughs> and I went, so I haven't been able to, under- so I thought maybe you would see it and you could explain to me what well, it was. Well, blowing high-speed garbage into the face of the audience is the greatest metaphor for his entire <laughs> career. I no, he, It's perfect. It's poetic. It's his entire life summed up in a moment. 
So in that case, then theatrically a success. I guess so. <laughs> but but Spider Man, um, they would shut down the show and pause it, right? Because things didn't work and stuff. But the idea was that if everything had worked, it also wasn't good, right? Right. I mean, the, the there's a whole song about shoes that you two had to write. So Bono had to sit down, and his assignment was all of the henchmen are also spiders. And the main villain is Arachne, the Greek goddess who was turned into a spider. So what do all these spiders need? So many shoes. So many. They all have eight <laughs> legs. They each need four pair of shoes minimum. So they rob a shoe store and they sing about it and they do tap dance as spiders. And you two had to write the shoe song. And that was the moment I really checked out. Is they, We spent a good three, four minutes singing about shoes. Written by Bono. Written by Bono. And The Edge. And The Edge. And they had to just sit there and write that song. And I don't think it made it. I'm glad I saw it before that got cut. But the fact that it didn't get cut immediately says a lot. Wow. I now have a new audition song. Yeah, now, exactly. Now has, um, have Bono or Edge commented on the Spider-Man show? I think the the... I read the whole book about it. And oh, yeah. The book looks pretty cleared. good, right? Yeah. They, he, they were originally signed up with some like producer who died before the show even opened. So they sort of got left out at sea. So I think they've been gradually distancing themselves further and further from it. Wow. What, uh, now, um, so you, where are you from originally? From New York. So born and raised in New York. Went to school in Boston. That's where I started doing stand-up. Um, I was doing magic. I've been a kid magician. Uh, ever since I was you know, about age five, got a magic kit and for what Hanukkah. You, what did you study in school? Psychology. Uh-huh. I was a psych major. I actually studied race-based humor and its effect on prejudice. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Which has become more and more relevant as time goes on. Yeah, we need on. you now more than ever before. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was also and wild. And here you are, wasting your time in a show. <laughs> um, your career is waiting you. So you, you know everything about Dick Gregory and uh, Lenny Bruce. Yeah, well, the crazy thing is I actually opened for Dick uh, at Caroline's. Yeah, you, you, you told me about that. Yeah, yeah. it was unbelievable. Um, first of all, his set was great. Uh, his relationship with his wife is what was adorable. Um, she came to a lot of the shows, and he would do a really long bit about having her come to the shows and what that meant, because there were some clubs where she wasn't allowed, or they, he was the headliner, and they would have to eat in the kitchen. So there, he's, he's performing at a fancy venue, but he's not allowed to eat there. Um, so he and his wife are in the kitchen, um, you know, and it, so there was a, that, that whole thing is insane. Cause he's also a civil rights hero. I mean, that's all going on in the background of he's doing great standup, but also he marched with Martin Luther King. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then the dressing room was the cr- wildest dressing room I've ever seen at Caroline's. Um, I, <laughs> cause he, I walk in and it's covered in newspaper. There's a newspaper clipping, some laminated, some not laminated, the most current newspaper, old newspapers. Because um, he and Mort, uh, who I also got, I got to see before he passed. Um, Mort Saul. M- Mort Saul really solidly believed JFK's assassination was a conspiracy. And they bring the evidence around with them. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so the, all those newspaper clippings were like pieces of evidence. And he would bring a few on stage and be like, see, like, here's the proof. And they were both very, very convinced. I spoke to both of them. I even got to ask Mort because th- he has a Q&A. And so my question to him was, if you were the president, You've been critical of politicians and presidents for your whole career. If you were president, what's the first thing you would do? And he said, I would find out who killed JFK. <laughs> wow, yeah. It's amazing because those are two incredibly smart. Yeah. Well, you know, and Johnny. 
Johnny was also Johnny Thompson believed that yeah that the Kennedy assassination was carried out by someone else. Yeah, I think I talked about that a, yeah. a couple times. It's 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 amazing, and it's also amazing that that particular thing follows a pattern. Did you know that that um, the Lincoln assassination did the same thing? Hmm. Um, I blame the Jews in both cases. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if we'd trace yeah. it back far enough. Well, yeah, it's our fault. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, completely believed it was John Wilkes Booth, and then for fifty years or thirty years, all these conspiracy theories. Then they just go away. Here's the thing about the Abraham Lincoln assassination: is not enough people concentrate on the actors because <laughs> there was a whole play going. So I want to know what happened backstage during that performance, and then what happened the My next cousin. Night. Uh, my American cousin, my American I think, cousin, my American, which was a comedy. My cousin Vinny, <laughs> and it was like a really hot comedy. And the reason John Wilkes Booth fired when he did was he knew the play because he was part of an acting family. Mm -hmm. He knew the play very well; it was popular. He fired during the biggest laugh in the show, hoping it would cover. So, in a weird way, it was complimentary to the actors and playwright <laughs> that that play was chosen for the. It was so funny; it killed a president. Uh, but Harrison, what's the what's the uh, What's the shoot Abraham Lincoln line to Matt Apple? What's the line? <laughs> what's the line of Matt Apple that's be a good time for me to shoot someone? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of moments. <laughs> what about the Penn and Teller show, Ben? What's what do you think's the the John Boat, <laughs> yeah. um, fire line? I think you'd shoot uh, you you'd shoot uh, the president when I say I get a lot of this wrong. After I get, realize that the Spanish directions are actually also there in English. <laughs> that may be one of the big laughs. Or it might be when Elsie, when we vanish uh, Elsie. Yes. And I say we're going to transform her into a barnyard animal. Yes. Everybody realizes we're going to change her into a cow. Yeah. Uh, and Jonesy is playing Born Free with Roger Williams' hands. Yeah. He's just gone to his fifth key change, and the music is uh, crescendoing might be a good time. Yeah, it's a good time to fire on the president there, yeah. There were a bunch of actors who every time somebody mentioned, like, oh my God, were you on stage when the president was assassinated? Like, it was a good show. It was very funny, <laughs> and not enough people asked me, but how was the show? It was also the night I, got, I finally got my wife to come out. I was really proud of this thing I had in Act 2. I didn't get to do it for her. She she saw me do all the work, and, and the president gets shot, and I That's can't true. do my There were three actors who were like, but we can finish this show, right? <laughs> there were, uh, how many, did we know how many actors were on stage during it? They were on stage when the assassination happened, and then I think after the gunshot, there was uh, chaos. But they were it was the show was taking place. Yeah. One guy wouldn't break character. <laughs> That's right. Sat at his table going. drinking the coffee. The show must go on. <laughs> I saw, uh, what show is it? I saw De Niro in a show on Broadway. And he was sitting, of course, in his, you know, he's sitting in like a white tank top undershirt, you know, at a Formica table you know, eating toast or something. <laughs> and uh, I forgot the show, really. Except he put his socks on very carefully. Remember, that was a big thing. <laughs> Make sure his feet were clean. He was getting dressed in the show. And, and uh, no, it wasn't. I forgot what it was. De Niro in Hamlet. <laughs> and uh, it was my American cousin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They've never revived it either. That guy didn't just kill a president. He killed a show. <laughs> uh, I was there. That, I was at the Ford Theater with my son, and there is a sign in the window that says, no weapons allowed. And my 
17-year-old autistic son said, a little late for that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> so uh, a person had a heart attack in the audience, and emergency people came in. Wow. And uh, they stopped the show, and De Niro sat there on stage, really with his um, glass of orange juice, and his piece of toast, and stayed entirely in character, like he was thinking what his next line was for the entire time it happened. And it was probably six, seven minutes. Wow. <laughs> and uh, De Niro just, uh, I believe the other actor, I think the other actor was just doing an exit or an entrance or something. So it was just De Niro on stage with a Formica table and, you know, uh, piece of toast doing seven <laughs> minutes alone. I love it. I accidentally did that. I was taking a Shakespearean acting class mm -hmm. at, in college. and uh, But that, that turned out to be a dead end, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, let me take a little acting. This could be helpful. Yeah. Um, so I was doing uh, a speech from Julius Caesar, and I'm looking over Caesar's body. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, there's two professors. One was an acting coach and one was like a very cool, like Shakespearean scholar, which is why I wanted to take the class. I thought that was a cool combination of like somebody who really understood the text and we would actually study it. And then somebody who understood how to act it and bring it to life. And so I'm staring at this imaginary body and I'm just waiting for them to cue me and say, okay, your turn. Cause we were, every student was taking a turn. So I'm staring at the body. I'm trying to get really sad. I'm picturing my own best friend dead to try to get into that space of like, this is that speech where he's, oh my God, this is what we've done. And it feels like a really long time. And it is, it's like six or seven minutes are going by. I'm like, man, this is a fucking really long time to write down notes about the last guy. And I look up and I go, should I start? And they're like, we thought you had. And they thought I'd made this really dramatic choice to just stare at the body for six minutes before I start my speech. And the whole class was wow. riveted. And they're probably like, who's this asshole? It's a one minute monologue. He just stares at the body. And I should have just, I shouldn't have even said, I should have just started this speech. I would have, that would have been the greatest performance they've ever seen oh, completely yeah. by accident. But the other thing that, 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 uh, the De Niro story trigger was I was with Gilbert. Um, we were doing two shows in a row uh, in Gotham. And the first night um, I went up, Gilbert went up and right as Gilbert went up, somebody like kind of ran out and then somebody ran out behind that person. And Gilbert was like, was it something I said? And he did a whole bit about this people running out of the theater during Gilbert's act. Was it the joke? Did it, do I need to be? And then he, you know, did a whole riff on how dirty he could be to see if he can make, that lady evidently had had some kind of heart something, was having some kind of stroke, ended up uh, going unconscious in the club, dying at the hospital later. And the person running behind her was some kind of doctor who then ran back in during the set and said, is there a doctor in the house? And there, is there a doctor in the house? Uh, and Gilbert thought that was the funniest thing. Because <laughs> when do you ever actually hear somebody say, is there a doctor in the house? Like a weird old school sitcom. Yeah, well, Dick, Dick Cavett, when he had the, um, uh, when the person died, during his talk show, right? Yeah. Which it's an interesting thing sociologically because many people have seen that, uh, the guy die on Dick Cavett's show, except it was never aired. No one ever saw it. They, it's just all made up. But um, Dick Cavett in one of his books talks about how this guy was dying on stage with him, with a live audience. And that he did not say, is there a doctor in the house? He said, is there anyone with medical training? Mm. 
because he knew if he said, is there a doctor in the house, that was a cliche <laughs> right. that would play as some sort <laughs> oh, of joke. Wow. Slowly right. I turn. Yeah. <laughs> and then the next night, Gilbert had jokes about it, which was the perfect encapsulation of there is no such thing as too soon. Like Lady <laughs> died the day before in the same spot. <laughs> And he was like, this lady comes out, doctor. And the last thing that lady ever heard was Gilbert saying, like, is it something I said? Like, this whole, like, it was it was incredible. I would, I would have loved to have been that lucky to have the last thing I heard in my life be Gilbert's voice. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I, and I do a joke about it, so it's partially in my act, but... Uh, there was a medical emergency on a flight that I was on and somebody was having like a heart thing and legitimately the guy next to me was like, I'm a psychologist. And I was like, sit the fuck down. <laughs> what are you going to do for the guy? Are you just going to stand over him? Like, are you angry? You're going to die. Would you like me to call over a dentist? So two people can't help you. How does it feel? Painful. No, emotionally. How does yeah, it feel? Exactly. And that's the moment during the podcast. You can assassinate a president. <laughs> Uh, someone must have done a revival of my American cousin, right? I, I honestly don't know if somebody ever Old has. Please. With, yeah, I bet they have. But I what did. is the ad copy read? With the shot. The, yeah. With the shot. We're gonna, what, was, what was that night like? Boy, that's, that's a great play. Right? The play about the play. Yeah. yeah, the play about the play that starts with the all the all the way through, da, 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 and then there's the shot, and then you follow what like Rosencrantz and Gilderstern. Right, you don't get to follow any of the presidential yeah. actors. You just follow the actors going, oh, jeez. Yeah, there's a stage manager who's like, stand by, stand by. <laughs> we might be going, we might be going. Don't get out of costume yet. There's no way that was the president that got shot. Right? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> That'd be a different. Yeah, it looks like only 40 performances. That was it. And also, how many people worked on that show? They worked so hard. <laughs> Somebody wrote it. It got produced. Yeah. And then Lincoln had to go die during it. Tom Taylor is the writer. <laughs> Our American English cousin. playwright. Oh, there you go. And <laughs> <laughs> where is the Ford Theater? Uh, in D.C.? In D.C. Oh, in D.C., yeah. yeah. Of course it would be. I've worked it, and then I think every comedian is obligated to make some oh, kind of Lincoln Oh, for a long joke. time in London before it came to the u.s it was like a popular hit so people yeah. were very pumped that it was coming to america <laughs> and it's funny enough that one assassin said this is the one this is the yeah, this is a good show for it well i'm thinking harrison stay with me on this all right if we wait um two years and if the election goes in the way we don't want it to go <laughs> <laughs> maybe you and i put a production <laughs> of my American cousin up in the Ford Theater that the president would want to come to. I like it. I and like let it. the world take care of the rest. <laughs> what do you have think? The, and have, the, have everyone just go like, no, they wouldn't. <laughs> they They're wouldn't. not really doing it. They wouldn't. Well, it's like you just got back from Australia. We could Harold halt him. That's the other thing. As I used to, when I was in Australia, talk about they had a prime minister who went swimming in the ocean and then just didn't come back. And then they just voted for a new one and then named the pool in Melbourne after him. The guy who presumably drowned and died. Uh, and so my joke was, uh, you know, how can we can't, uh, Donald Trump was president. So he said, uh, what happened? I had two questions. What happened to him? And how can we get his security for our guy? <laughs>
but they that's the weird thing about australians is that they're just like yeah he just mate he went swimming and he just didn't come back well they got the you know the the purple ringed octopus and they got sharks yeah. and man in the gray suit i think it's what they call the sharks <laughs> oh, no. man in the gray suit <laughs> really so that the 1915 uh, one was a revival that only lasted 40 shows 1915 1915 yeah there was, so a there was one after after that yeah that was that was the one after that no he he died april 14th 1865 right so they did a, they did another production after they did another production and oh, then wow. they, they the got sick 1900s. of hecklers just going bang <laughs> 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 the poster just says i killed john will spoof <laughs> <laughs> Is there a producer who has to argue that Force Majeure doesn't cover assassination? <laughs> I know it says we have to pay you three months severance, but this isn't oh, here's, covered. Here's the line. Don't know the manners of good society, eh? Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal. You sock-dologizing old man trap. <laughs> you what? Sock-dologizing old man trap. Sock-mologizing? Sock-dologizing. Sock-dologizing old man trap. That was the name of my Herald the team in New York. It's easy to do Ambiguous term of abuse or scheming. Sockdologizing. Sockdologizing. I'm going to bring that insult back. We got to bring it back. We're, uh, we're Harrison and uh, Penn, and we just want to um, humbly invite uh, the president to our <laughs> performance at the Ford Theater of uh, our American cousin. <laughs> Why don't you come on by? Yeah, well, that would be that would be us on the uh, you know on the Today Show. <laughs> Every actor in the play, regardless of character, is a hot blonde with huge tits. Doesn't matter who they are, <laughs> old man, young boy, it's all blondes, huge tits. Everyone, don't you worry, Donald. We aren't in it. That's right. We're exactly. not going to appear on stage at all. We're just the producers. We're just inviting you. Yeah. <laughs> Every single. Every single character in this play looks just like your daughter. That's right. It's our American daughter. We've updated it. <laughs> and they're nearly <laughs> naked. Exactly. <laughs> and we mentioned they look just like your daughter. Our American cousin, <laughs> wet t-shirt edition. Yeah. <laughs> wet hot American cousin. <laughs> I think it's. A, I think we have a, hit, a huge hit on our hands. <laughs> what an American cousin! <laughs> it's definitely the name of this episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'll be huge in Virginia. <laughs> so yeah, the Ford Theater. What is it? Did, did we ever play? The, I don't know. If Glenn were here, he'd tell me whether I played the Ford Theater. How many seats is it? I'd say it's around a thousand, right? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So, uh, but the 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 English fellow writing it had found the word sock dolinger in a dictionary of Americanisms. Sock-dolinger. And so he thought it was an American term and and then changed it to sock-dolingerizing. What does sock-dolinger mean? Sock-dolinger is a fanciful variant of sock to hit. Com uh, compare contemporary fanciful American coinages. Various speculations. Uh, a, a knockout or a finishing blow. Sock-dolinger. The sock dolinger is the is the punch that knocks the guy out. Yeah, I, I tell you, Tyson has a hell of a sock dolinger. There That's it right. is. <laughs> Still doesn't displace defenestration as my favorite word. <laughs> the fact that somebody was like, no, no, enough people are getting pushed out windows that we need a specific term for that action, defenestration. That seems simpler than just saying he fell out or was pushed out of a window. 665 seats at the Ford Theater. 
<laughs> Pro- we probably didn't play it. We probably play the we play the national. I think we the national has sixteen hundred seats. Yeah, that's where we. There, there you go. go. Now we're talking. Yeah. So, so you, 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 you I played the first venue I headlined in uh, DC was the Big Hunt, and you had to say it very carefully. <laughs> I'm at the Big Hunt <laughs> in Washington DC. And it was named for that reason, I'm sure. Right? They had a lot of dinosaurs, but yeah, I'm sure if you said it fast enough, it was come to the Big Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, Piff. One of his tours was called the uh, Epic Hunt. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you lived in a small apartment. I lived in a 500 square foot studio in New York, 14 Five years. square foot is small. Very small. Very small. For 14 years. For 14 years. I kept thinking, okay, I'm probably going to move this year. And then I never did. And I was on the road a lot. So it was basically just a very expensive closet anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the pandemic happened, which I think every New Yorker who had been justifying their small apartment by saying, but I'm never there. Was like, oh shit, I'm locked in this thing. <laughs> um, so that then it got a little bit cozy. <laughs> but New York was uh I, I was doing magic uh and then when I got to college, I started fooling around with stand-up because I had a fraternity brother. Basically, I got rejected from every club at Harvard. I because everybody there was the editor of the yearbook. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you join the yearbook and everybody is like, Well, I was the editor in high school, and they're like, We you, we, we all are. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're fucked. Like everybody was the editor of the newspaper. So no, not they, basically they say, look to your left, look to your right. Yeah. Only one of you can be in the top third of the class. Right. Uh, and they're like, statistically speaking, at least two of you will think you're in the top third of the class, but that's mathematically impossible. <laughs> so set your expectations realistically. So I was getting rejected left and right from every club. Um, the one <laughs> they had this thing where everybody would audition for all of the shows for this semester at once in one place. So there was all these signups. So I said, fuck it. I'm auditioning for everything. They can't reject me from every show. And I just signed my name to literally every list. They could, they definitely could. Uh, The show that I made it farthest in was a modern dance show. I am not a dancer, nor a modern dancer. But but but, dance has a lot of wiggle room. But I was at the end of my rope and I said, fuck it. And I just ran around the room really fast. (laughs) I flapped my arms and then I rolled on the floor and they were like, call back. There you go. So I got a call back and then I had to learn choreography and then it was all over. But freestyle, lo- they loved me. <laughs> hey, y'all, just have to interrupt the show to quickly talk to you about Fabric, Fabric Life Insurance. Hey, if you're looking to get your financial future organized, if you don't have life insurance yet, that should be at the top of your list. Fabric by Gerber Life is the easy one-stop shop you need with life insurance and other family finance solutions all in one place. Fabric is designed by parents for parents to help you get high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance in less than 10 minutes. If it takes less than 10 minutes to apply, you can see your quote, then personalize your quote to fit your family's needs. You could be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. That's possible, right? Fabric has partnered with Gerber Life. They're trusted by millions of families like yours 50 years over. I know me. I uh, first got young children. It's the first time I had to grow up and get some life insurance, you know, take care of my family. Finally, I know I'm, I'm helping out my kiddos no matter how successful I am as a, as a, as a hack magician, right? So protect your family today with Fabric by Gerber Life. Apply today in just 10 minutes at meetfabric.com slash pen. That's M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash P-E-N-N, M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash pen. All right. Policy issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Policy, not available in certain states. Prices 
subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, check it out. Check out Fabric. And now it's time to tell you about, of course, my favorite sponsor. I believe all of our favorite sponsor, but certainly mine. We're talking about Trade Coffee. I mean, this is a this is a company that I advertise off air. This is how much it means to me. This is how much it's improved my life, right? Uh, maybe that sounds strong, but you know, everybody likes going coffee in the morning, and I want really good coffees that are just medium bodied and. Those aren't always sold in wide varieties at my local grocery store. So now I go to Trade Coffee where I can get 55 of the nation's top-rated independent roasters offering over 450 unique roasts delivered fresh to my doorstep. There is nothing better than going to the mail, opening up and realizing you have a package of coffee and you open that bag and smell beautiful, amazing coffee that's better than any coffee you can buy at your local store. I mean, Trade Coffee is a coffee subscription service. It makes it so simple to discover new coffees and make your best cup of coffee at home every day. Whether you already know what you like or if you're new to specialty coffee and need some help, Trade Coffee makes it easy and convenient to discover their coffees. Upgrade your morning routine with better coffee. Right now, Trade Coffee is offering viewers a free bag of coffee with any subscription at drinktrade.com slash pen. That's drinktrade.com slash pen for a free bag of coffee with any subscription purchase. Drinktrade.com slash pen. I have to tell you straight up, I don't know if there's a better endorsement. My wife thinks I'm a better person now that I've provided her with surprisingly great coffee each and every month. Love it. Get there now. Drinktradecoffee.com slash pen. So you you were in school. No, you say school in Boston, Harvard, right? Yeah. Harvard cock. Yeah, exactly. Went to, went to Harvard exactly. Cock. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it's weird because it's the only school that like there's only there's two ways to do it. You could say where did you go to college, and you say Harvard, and they go you're an asshole. Mm-hmm. Or you can say I went to a small school, and they go oh which one? It was in Boston. Oh, we're in Boston. Well, not really Boston, Cambridge. We're in Cambridge. Ah, it's like a small Laurel. It doesn't matter. No, no, was it MIT? No, it wasn't MIT. Was it Tufts? No, it wasn't Tufts. What was the name of the school? And you're like Harvard. Like man, you're an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <So> either way, <laughs> either way, you're an asshole. Conan O'Brien tries to conceal it. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's hard to conceal him. He's very tall. <laughs> when I was on the show, they took that picture of me next to him, and I looked tiny, tiny, well, tiny. He's, he's just a little shorter than me. Yeah. yeah. And he has that hair, though. He's like very... Yeah, yeah. It just, everything is channeled upwards through his hair, so he seems yeah. even taller than he is. Uh, but, but you're much younger than Conan. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. He was he was Lampoon president. Yeah. Uh, I tried to get to the Lampoon, couldn't I tried literally every club. Um the tangent on that was that uh, I was doing stand-up. And I guess that's where the other story was leading anyway, was that I was auditioning for all these things, couldn't get in anything. A Pi comes knocking. A Pi is the Jewish fraternity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only rule is you have to be Jewish. And I was like, Greenbaum, Shabbat Shalom, motherfuckers. <laughs> you have to take I'm me. I'm in. So all of a sudden, I'm in a fraternity, despite not wanting to be in a fraternity, but they've accepted me. <laughs> I have an invitation. I'm in. Uh, it ended up being really great because one of the guys in that fraternity uh, was part of a smaller humor magazine that was not the lampoon it was called demon magazine it didn't even make it through the end of my four years at school but once a year they would have a stand-up comedy show Mm -hmm. and so he called me up and he said you're pretty funny when you do magic tricks do you want to do funny magic tricks in the stand-up show and i said actually i've never done stand-up i don't know when i'll ever get this opportunity can i just do stand-up and that ended up becoming the first time i ever did stand-up and it was revelatory why would someone agree to that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why did they say yes? I've never done stand-up. Can I be in the stand-up show of the year here? Oh, yeah, sure. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's, that works great. Well, it was the humor <laughs> magazine, so they were kind of producing it as like, this is an opportunity to play around and have people do stand-up for their first time or third time. or It was all amateurs. It was, it, there wasn't that many people <laughs> who've been doing it for a while. Uh, but I, I had been doing like magic at the Mystery Lounge, which was right off of Harvard Square. It's the third floor of a Chinese restaurant. It's a place called the Hong Kong. Um, and I was apprenticing, so I was dragging people's shit up three flights of stairs. Um, as Rick, who, the owner of the Comedy City, would joke, uh, the Chinese don't know we're here. <laughs> we would just perform in the attic, and then we'd put all the chairs away, and then no one knew we there were shows shows happening. That was all magic there? It was magic on Tuesday nights, and then the other nights were stand-up. So that's where I started. To, I'd never seen a live stand-up show before. So I was like, ooh, let me come on the other nights. Um, and because Rick... On the other nights, Rick is inundated by all the other comics who want to get booked and want to talk to him and ask for advice. I'm the only person interested in stand-up on the magic nights. So I have, I have access to somebody that I wouldn't have access to normally. Um, so I'm doing, I, I'm starting to do this magic, but I'm dressed like I'm in a country club. I'm wearing, you know, khakis. I don't, I'm not cursing because magic has to be clean, even though it's, you know, an adults only thing. So I finally get to say fuck on stage. I dress like myself and I was like, oh, this is really cool. Uh, and it simultaneously, uh, everybody's getting really cool internships for the summer because it's Harvard and everybody's an overachiever. And I don't have any fancy internships. So I start applying at random. Uh, and I throw out a flyer and I go, I love Mad Magazine. I used to read my dad's old Mad Magazines that he had in my grandma's house. Let's see if they'll take me. And I ended up becoming an intern for Mad Magazine. No, you didn't. And then I became a, a writer for Mad Magazine. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Real? What uh, years was that? Uh, my internship was 2005. So from 2005 until the magazine. So way, 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 way after, uh, Bill Gaines. Yeah. Bill Gaines had passed, but Bill mm. Gaines loved magic. Um, so John Vaccaro, who was the editor instituted, uh, Monday magic. So at every Monday meeting, I would do some kind of magic effect. And then every time I would go back and visit, I would have to do some kind of effect. And it was really fun. So you wrote at Mad Magazine to 2005? Yeah. And it was comedy boot camp. It was the best thing I could have possibly done. Um, and Mad Magazine didn't stop until when? Well, so it, it was in New York, and then Warner Brothers was like, we're going to move it to L.A., because they're trying to move everything to L.A. And all the guys who were running it had been there for 30, 40 years. Their whole lives were in New York. And it's a New York-sounding magazine. Sure. Um, so none of the... Basically, I think one person was willing, were, was willing to relocate. So it was a completely new staff. Um, they moved it to L.A., and then it kind of died on the vine after a few episodes. It just didn't sound like... In April 2018, yeah. at the end. So they're still technically publishing it, but they're just reprinting old stories with new covers. I see. Um, but it was it, it was incredible. I mean, there's that Simpsons episode where Bart goes to Mad Magazine, and it's the, you know Alfred E. Newman's running around, and it's wild, and it was absolutely that. Like the first day I came in, they said we're going to drug test you, and I was like, uh, oh okay. And they go, and if it comes back negative, you're fired. <laughs> it was like that kind of tone. And they literally stood. Sometimes writers stood over my shoulder as I was writing jokes, and it was comedy boot camp. They taught me how to write jokes. Uh, so that was, wow. and they could do it. It was such an, e they made it look easy. It was so effortless. We would be sitting in a meeting and writing, you know, the, I, I got to write an Al Jaffe folded. Like they let me do all really? sorts of nice. crazy things. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Cause we would come up with the question, the, the fake answer and the thing, and then he would do the illustrations and he never folded them. He would do it on, on this like hard sort of cardstock and he would use string. So he knew where the thing was going to fold. And until it was printed, he never had fold. He would never fold it. Wow. Yeah. He could, he was doing it by eye, and he's still around. He's in his nineties. Wow. Because I, you know, we were so thrilled because we appeared uh, in two 
uh, two Mad Magazine parodies. We showed up in the Total Recall one, nice. uh, where uh, all of a sudden in the middle, Penn and Teller pop in, and they say, what are you doing here? And they go, well, none of this plot makes sense anyway, so why wouldn't we be here? Something like that. <laughs> nice. And there was, there was another parody that we appeared in, and I just, I just couldn't believe it. I just, I was just, it was just such an amazing moment. And Bill uh, Gaines yep. came to see Penn and Teller on Broadway. I met him afterwards, and he invited me to lunch and then died. Oh, my God. Just like Nixon, who invited me to lunch and died. <laughs> oh, I, I, maybe I should never invite you to lunch. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> I can't believe you actually worked there. Yeah, it was, and then the cool thing was, once, I, once you do the internship, so it's an unpaid internship, but you can submit writing. Uh, mm -hmm. And so they usually, their goal was to make sure you could sell a couple of pages. Because um, yeah. at that time, the rate was 500 a page. So if you could sell them two or three pages, that was enough money to make the six weeks of the internship, yeah. you know, cover it. Um, and so I, I did get to sell um, a couple of pages. I wrote, um, my, my debut in Mad Magazine was, what if stand-up comedians told the same joke? Which was a revival of a very old feature. Um, but I did all the popular contemporary comedians at the time telling why did the chicken cross the road in their voice. Well, that's exactly my movie, The Aristocrats, but that's not important. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was like Dan Cook doing uh, Never Getting to the Punchline. Carlos Mencias was just assembled from all the other ones on the page. <laughs> uh, Louis Black got very angry. Bill Mars was a political new rule kind of thing. So everybody had their uh -huh. their version of it. Uh, but it was great. And then we there was this a really sweet story was that anybody could submit to Mad Magazine and they w we would read it. So anybody who ever submitted to Mad, they did read your article. Uh, and there was this one guy who submitted articles for 30 years, and they were all terrible, and they were never publishable. And this poor guy every month would send in, all right, how about this one? How about this one? <laughs> and uh, they, they, a letter came in while I was an intern, and they said, all right, this article isn't great, but it has. I think we could turn this into something. So I rewrote the guy's article, added a ton of jokes, and we finally published. So I ghost wrote it. Uh, and we re and he finally got his publication. So I was responsible for ghostwriting uh, this article. He had he had the, he had the premise and he had one of the jokes. So we're like, that's enough, great. So he finally got his two pages after thirty years of submitting. But it was great to see that process. The worst thing they could say about your art, or your your cartoon, if you sent it in, was they would say New Yorker, and then they would toss it to the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was the that was definitely death if somebody called it a New Yorker cartoon. Now. Um I wrote a, uh, a Deadpool Spider-Man comic book, and uh, so I learned how you do that. Now, you didn't draw anything in Mad Magazine, right? Right. So, so you, would, you would lay it out just like you would a comic book, and then someone else would draw it? Yeah, and the illustrators were also all very sort of handpicked and funny, and you would send in your pitch. They would approve it or not. You get notes on it. You they, you keep working with them until they're happy with it, and then they go through their stable, and they're like, "That guy is probably the best person to do that art." Mm -hmm. And I mean, there was some insane stuff like Herman uh, Mejia. Uh, there was a war in Iraq thing, and they wanted to make a chess set, and he built the he sculpted each one of those things. So those were not illustrations. He mailed us a box of sculptures that we then photographed and put in the magazine. So there was some really um and Mort uh Mort Drucker um I got to see his original art ballpoint pen a blue ballpoint pen and because the magazine was printed in black and white you'd never know he would just take a random big pen and all those illustrations are just pen literal pen on paper really yeah so it, it was the whole gamut so you went from being an intern to actually working there yeah which is one of the things I think might have 
National Lampoon wasn't thrilled. Uh, Harvard Lampoon wasn't thrilled if you were or, like there was somebody else who had also gone to Harvard at Mad Magazine who was like, "Don't tell them you write for Mad. That's going to be a death sentence," because um, they want to kind of own you a little bit. Um, but I, I got back to campus. I had been bar- uh, barking, which is when you stand out on a street corner and you hand out flyers. Yep. Uh, so for two hours of uh, barking, I got five minutes at the end of the show, all the way on the Upper West Side, oh, uh, the Underground Lounge. Uh, that ended up being a seminal moment because right before I went on stage, I was putting sponge balls in my back pocket. Mm-hmm. And this comedian who I'm now friends with, but I didn't know that well back then, just goes, what the fuck are you doing? And I go, <laughs> well, these are they're sponge balls. So like, if the, the set's going south, I can close with this. It's going to be a big like applause thing. And he goes, if you do that, you'll never learn how to do comedy. <laughs> and he was uh, 100% correct. Because if you have a safety net, you you don't get better. Um, so that was when I made the clear decision at that moment. I was going to keep them very, very separate, which I did for a really long time. I'm just going to learn how to do stand-up and kill as a stand-up comedian. And that was the same thing with the comedy seller, was I wanted to get past there and work there without them ever knowing I was a magician. And then eventually I told them, like, hey, I have this magic show that combines the two. But I wanted to be, I wanted to get in there on my stand-up comedy alone. I don't want to have any other thing. Um, and just even like closing on stand-up. Like it's very easy to close on a magic trick. There's a clear like applause break. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to be able to say, okay, I can go up there for an hour, do stand up, and never touch a, a prop. Um, so that started sort of the bifurcation. Um, but I got back to campus, and Demon was only doing shows once a year. And I was like, I need to get up way more than that. <laughs> so I'm going to start a stand up club. And we started the Harvard Stand Up Comic Society, or Harvard Sucks. Uh, we submitted the application. We never wrote Harvard Sucks, we wrote Harvard Stand Up Comic Society, submitted all the paperwork. I get an email from the dean's office. We need to see you immediately. Shit. So I go to the dean's office and they go, we have a problem with your name. And before I could say anything else, they go, it's an undergrad thing. So it has to be the Harvard College Stand-Up Comic Society. And I was like, absolutely not a problem. I will resubmit it tonight. <laughs> so Harvard College sucks, got through. And then uh, they didn't realize what we had done until I applied for, you have to apply to the trademark office to print any shirt that says Harvard on it because it's a big trademark. So you submit the design and they sign off and then you get it printed. So we submitted these shirts that just said Harvard College sucks on them. (laughs) And then we got a really angry letter being like, we've approved it, but we are very disappointed and upset that that's like that you would do this. And then it wasn't until my five-year reunion that uh, one of the deans pulled me to the sign. I was like, we had to send you that letter officially, legally, uh, but it was the best prank that's ever been pulled out on. We all sat around the office being like, God damn it, that's good. <laughs> and Harvard College still exists. We're still around. <laughs> Harvard College still exists. Har- Harvard College sucks. The oh, kind of organization. Yeah, I, yeah. Thought, I thought you were bragging that Harvard right. College Harvard is exactly. still there. And it's still there. Can How did you end up Captain going to Harvard, Cock? Were you, are you a rich kid or? No. Legacy uh, or my, you're just like an overachiever? My grandparents were Holocaust survivors. They never went to college. They worked. My grandfather worked in a sock factory. My parents both went to community college. Uh, so I was the first Ivy League in my whole family. Uh, so it was just kind of a fluke. I wrote an article, I wrote an essay about doing magic that had a built in sort of uh, mentalisty magic trick that happened to you while you read the essay. So I think that helped a little bit. Um, but yeah, it was a total fluke. I applied early and. Uh, and you got to get it. You had great grades. And- yeah, I was definitely like a goody two shoes and had all that kind of stuff going on for sure. Wow. Yeah, and it, it, and you didn't go to write for the Simpsons afterwards, right? Well, that's all. The, those are all the Lampoon guys mostly. Okay. <laughs> I was busy. Right, our posters for Harvard College sucks. Were like the Lampoon, but funny and inclusive. <laughs> <laughs>
And and once we gra- once I graduated, it there was there was definitely less of that feeling. Like Mike Reese, who's one of the Simpsons writers, who was a Lampoon guy, mm-hmm. has been so kind, and we've been friends for a long time. He's a wonderful guy. He's amazing. I love all the Simpsons guys tremendously. Oh, they're great. I just don't like the Simpsons. Yeah, and Mike. The funny thing about Mike is, I was just starting stand up in New York, and he popped up at a couple of shows, and I was like, "That's Mike Reese, Simpsons writer." Like. Uh, and because Harvard has this like alumni network, you can email anybody who went to Harvard. They might not ever respond or see it, but you can send a message. And if it does get to them and they do want to respond, they can respond back and, and you can have a conversation. So there's certain people I wrote that never responded back. But I looked up Mike, his, there was a, the forum, and I sent him an email just saying, hey, I think I've seen you in the audience. Huge fan. Uh, would be an honor to meet you sometime. Uh, and he emailed back immediately. Oh my God, I, I'm a fan of yours. I like, that's why, whoop, that's why I've been going to your standup. Um, uh, so we set a date to have lunch, uh, which is a couple of weeks from then. And between and that- he didn't, he didn't die? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I have a great play that I want you to invest in. Called <laughs> Our American Cousin. I've got your balcony seats. The hot, wet version. <laughs> exactly. Between that, like, it was like a, the lunch was set for like a week from then. Uh, between that, I was scheduled on a show called The Naked Comedy Show which I had done in Boston. Uh, there's a guy named Andy O'Feish would host it. He's a small guy, very small penis. And that was part of the bit was that he would come out like, oh, I, I auditioned for the puppetry of the penis, but I can only do acorn. <laughs> and so he made everybody else feel huge. <laughs> so you're like, great. Uh, that was the first show I ever got paid on. So I was putting my pants back on from the Naked Comedy Show and he handed me $20. And I've never felt more like a whore in my life. <laughs> I was like, I've been paid, everybody. It was really a Naked Comedy Show? Yeah, I was like, I, I wanted to, I was like, this definitely has got to be people's greatest two fears. They're naked in front of everybody and they have to do stand up. Mm-hmm. And this was pre everybody having phones with high resolution that they could just tweet out. So it was definitely safer back then to do something like that. But he was doing a New York edition and I said, screw it. Like I need the stage time. Let's do it. So I walk out completely naked and who is in the front row, but Mike <laughs> and Denise Reese. And he like waves. So when we got to our lunch the next week, I was like, uh, so I guess you know everything about me. <laughs> so that was my, uh, yeah, my introduction. That's, you know, I always have said, if you have not been naked on stage, you're not in show business. That's right. <laughs> I mean, that's, I, I don't understand why anybody could, how you could get through show business without having that come up. Because, you know, the Marx Brothers were always naked. Really? Oh, they would strip naked for anything. <laughs> they always, and there's, there's famous stories. I mean, Harpo would show up naked at all. If you had, like when Alexander Wolcott would have a party over his house, like a croquet party and a proper <laughs> party they would see a guy running from bush to bush naked and it would be harpo who would just show up take his clothes off and let people see him running in the backyard <laughs> that's amazing yeah. and the marx brothers would often strip all of them would strip naked on an elevator and then just step out <laughs> when they were going to an office or something that's sort of my dream is to walk out doing stand-up with my dick out of my fly and never comment on it <laughs> just have my dick completely out never mention it well very very iggy pop yeah, <laughs> Iggy Pop used to do that at his shows. It was very nice. Yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah, there was a, there's a uh, friend of mine, uh, Andy Lerner, who had a company in Boston called Radio in the Nude, and that Perfect. was his. He did his all his advertising, and he says that there's one person that the elevator door opened and they walked into the offices nude, and that was me because <laughs> I said, "Oh, I thought you were. I thought everybody was. I'm so embarrassed." <laughs> and he had a client in there that day. It was a big uncomfortable Perfect. thing. <laughs> yeah. Anytime they think I'm not going to get nude for a bit, I'm like, I don't think you know who I am. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is, it, is this going to get a laugh? I am there. Of course. 
course, you've got to. My first, my first day on Mad Apple, when they were showing me the lift, they had me going up and down the lift, and they kept, I kept going up and down, up and down. So on the third one, I was like, I'm going with my ass out, and they're like, No, and I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm going up there naked, and so I had my pants off. I was covered enough that I, I don't want to cause like a harassment thing, but I came up ass out for sure up the lift, and I think that was when they were like, Oh, okay, we have a comedian in the show. Well, we did a thing. Teller and I uh, were uh, backstage at Jubilee, which was a topless show. Georgie, who's a good friend of mine, was in it. She invited us backstage. We're backstage. And all the women were running by us changing. And they got very upset that Tell and I were standing back there. And they said, um, why, why are you standing back there? How would you feel if you were naked and there were just people there? So they all went off stage. And when they came back on, Tell and I were both standing there naked. Right. <laughs> watching them from backstage. And then we got in more trouble. Right. <laughs> Strangely, we did not get in less trouble. We thought we were making an academic point. Right. Yeah. Right. We would not be bothered by this. You know, turnabout is fair play, but that was not the point they thought we were making. Right. <laughs> right. Fair. So. I also learned from the Naked Comedy Show because I was like, I want to be, I want to do a magic trick on the Naked Comedy Show. Nobody's ever done a magic trick on the Naked Comedy Show. Mm -hmm. And I thought I would do uh, basically a bill switch. Uh, and it turns out it's very hard to borrow an item from the audience when that involves you naked going close to them to grab the object. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we did, when we did, uh, we are the first uh, first full frontal nude male in Las Vegas with Ben and Teller Amazing. on stage at Bally's at the Celebrity Room because we were stripped naked to show there was nothing up our sleeves <laughs> or anywhere else for, the, for a finale we did in our show, right? We stripped naked and had two people from the audience examine us. Uh, underneath our little Houdinis and everything, make sure nothing was hidden, and then we produced stuff. It was, a, you know, test conditions magic thing was the right. gag on it. But we are, in the history of Vegas nudity, we are the first male full frontal nude. And it was illegal when we did it, but we did it anyway. And uh, so we have that, that whole thing, you know. And uh, then being on the cover of the book of Vegas nudity, that makes it sell less than you'd think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they wanted to put Marilyn Chambers. Marilyn Chambers was the first full frontal nude woman. Yeah. And Carol Dota was the first topless wow. on the strip. But then Penn and Teller come in. <laughs> and so it's, uh, we, we were very, uh, very proud of that. But Teller and I have, uh, have, uh, have decided it was funny to be naked a, uh, a few times. And I've also, you probably know this too, if you strip impromptu on a radio show, or if you strip <laughs> impromptu anywhere totally naked, what every stripper knows that I did not learn until it happened was don't throw your clothes. Right. Because exactly. <laughs> then you've got to go get them. Exactly. And that is awkward for everybody. Drop your clothes near where you are. Of course, you, you come out on stage naked, so you don't have that issue. Well, so that was the funny thing was with the Naked Comedy Show, you had to have your clothes off before you walked out. Because mm -hmm. then if, if you take your clothes off while you're on stage, it's stripping. That's a different license than a is comedy venue. Is yeah. that true? Oh, wow. So taking your clothes off is illegal. Walking out already naked, fine. <laughs> Getting tips, a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but people wanting to give you tips, not a problem. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> they weren't frustrated. Boy, I wish I could tuck a five under the guy's dick, right? <laughs> yeah, and it was it, it's it was a fun thing because I think I realized doing naked stand up was that you knew your jokes were working if their eyes were at up at your eyes. <laughs> now did this go on a lot? How many people did this? I mean, I never heard of this, the naked comedy thing. Andy, it was like a Boston thing for a really long time. Um, and so it was just, I, I always consider myself a Boston comic because I spent my first four years doing stand-up in Boston. 
Um, and so it was like it was like a Boston thing. So we all did it, and Andy was always the the host of it. He had a great joke. Also, his his dick isn't small; it's fun size because you could fit the whole <laughs> yeah. thing in your mouth, including the balls. Uh, but uh, then it traveled to New York at the Pit, the People's Improv Theater. Uh, was there for a little while, and then it kind of disappeared. Somebody tried to revive it, but by that point, it, there was too many cell phones, and it was at a venue where it was mostly other comics in the audience who just wanted to. It it right. lost the appeal of. You needed a host like Andy who was an actual nudist and would invite his nudist friends, some of them who would be naked in the audience. Mm -hmm. And so it made the vibe feel, it wasn't sexual. It was it was about the freedom of being naked and doing the thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the material you do would not be about being naked, of course. Just to regular Some people material. would try, but yeah, you would you usually make a joke or two and then you would just do your act. <laughs> and if the act was going well, they were looking at your face. And if they weren't, they were looking everywhere else. Weren't you cold? Uh, you know what? It wasn't too bad. Good. <laughs> Yeah, but definitely, I think people also you had that host coming out there, so you you looked gigantic. No, no I'm, not, I'm not talking about the size of your dick. I'm oh. talking about actually <laughs> physically cold. Um, it wasn't too bad. I think they actually turned the thermostat up a little yeah, bit. I think they do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I remember setting up my own camcorder. I was like, I would like a video of it. And I went to a guy and I said, Hey, can you hit record? I just want it filmed from like chest up. And he definitely zoomed out. <laughs> so I have the full thing on video somewhere on like a micro cassette or whatever that <laughs> format was. Yeah. And what years was this? That would have been 2007, 2008. Now, when you run for Senate, will this come back exactly. to haunt you? Do you exactly. think or not? Maybe. I'm sure there's a ton of things. I'm, I was going to say, Harrison, yeah. top five. Does it make the list of things that <laughs> yeah, prevent exactly. you from being a senator? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We're going to talk, we're gonna talk more with you on Wednesday. But for right now, that was Ben Sunday School. That was Ben Sunday School. Cha-cha-cha. And to our listening You become... Naked. <laughs> Boy, it must have been a thrill for you to get into Harvard with, with no family and not a rich family or anything. That must have really meant a lot to you. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, cool. It was a little lonely. It was weird because I knew nobody. But it was uh, it was a fresh start. No, we love you. Hey, Matt Donnelly, you got anybody to thank? Yeah. Good. It's time to thank the people who support us over at patreon.com slash pen. Thank you so much. Mike Oxball, Grayson Shore, Will Jason, Dave, I want to finger your gun, Bruner, Brenner. Sorry, I got thrown by that name. Tristan Connett, Omar Rivera, Aaron Boyd, Mason Gooch, Sagebrush, Matthew Mishu, Luke Mellon, Eileen Hunter, Jason Andrew Davidson, Peter B. Clark, Average Seal, Matt Williams, Tom Boneroffice McQueen, Soapy Fresh, Dan Griffith, Brad Sherlag, Mike Cavanaugh, Rafiki, Steve Feldman, Jonathan P., NewRuleFX.com, Eric M. Rhine, Chris Tehachapi Loop McKinney, Gary Cornley, Danny Insert Meta Joke Here Ruse, Matthew O'Sullivan, Betsy Batter, Little Mandar, if pens penchant for pinning, pen, penis, peninsula, a pendant student would pens pinpricked penmanship, oh, there's no spaces, uh, in, in, uh, ship and analyze pinpoint penumbras, oh, I wish there were spaces in that, Jobeth R. Bowers, Adam Stickney, Nathan Julian, Petty Officer Scoop, 
Daniel, one for Matt, I wistfully washed my Swiss wristwatch, and now I'm an Irish wristwatch. David K, David Peters, it's pronounced turmeric, chipotle, federal court order, YouTube offer, culinary, chimera, culinary, damn it, but go on. You guys are killing me. This is hilarious. Brandon Knapp, Nick Dingman, Colin Durham, Central Park Owl, Lancey Menchu, Stephen White, Harlan Liam Clark, Michelle Yeiser, and Brogan Hastings. Thank you so much. Reddy did have the line that um, for the Penn and Teller show that you shoot the president. Oh. That's ears during our bullet catch. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. That's you said yeah. to miss. Yeah. <laughs> Those, yeah.